This is Becoming Her, a podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show, and we're just going to have you introduce yourself. We have an extra special guest this episode, because who are you? Hi, uh, my name is Joe Kemp. I happen to be the parent of the host. Woohoo! Hi, Dad. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, so this is kind of an extra special episode for me. Um, I'm usually interviewing people I either don't know or I'm not super super close with so um, I'm I'm excited maybe a little bit more nervous than usual but definitely ready to have this conversation with you so um, I usually just start by asking the guests of on the podcast to just start telling their story wherever it feels natural for them or wherever makes the most sense for them so you know feel free to just start wherever wherever you want to all right well I'll do that um, my understanding is you're primarily focused on surviving uh, abuse yes. and violence. Yep. Okay. And so my story certainly starts there, for sure. Um, by way of information, I am actually, of course, transgendered. Yep. And I've known that since I remember anything, you know, so I've known that from a very early age. And I will factor that into the story as sure. we go, because my story is a little, a little stranger than most people's stories, I would imagine. That's okay. So um, I'm the second child of my parents. My elder brother uh, was born six years earlier than I, so I was born on his sixth birthday. And um, my mother, who was a survivor of... Um, childhood and other domestic violence <laughs> was extremely depressed upon my birth postpartum no doubt also because I was to be the daughter that she that she wanted she already had a son so my journey started there with my mother adopting an old it turns out old folk remedy at the suggestion of one of her high school buddies and began raising me as her daughter um, at an early age, and I believe you, Emily, have seen the photographs yeah. of me in the, in the little dress Dressed at the age dresses, of uh, age, yeah. yeah, at the age of one. But um, the the major factor in my childhood development was not primarily being transgendered. It was uh, an early experience, um, which caused me to develop a very early severe case of post-traumatic stress disorder at the age of three and a half. My parents had separated and my mother had developed the notion that somebody in her workplace would be the proper replacement for my father as a marital partner and invited this person into our home I believe it was during a work week, and um, I was three and a half at the time, and this this man raped her violently in my presence, and um, I hid first under the bed and then escaped to hide in the hall closet while this rape was going on. It was very, um, very traumatic, very noisy, lots of screaming and sobbing, and then after a, an interminable length of time, it finally got quiet and I was in the back of the hall coat closet hiding behind the winter coats and for the longest time it was quiet and then after some indeterminately long period of time the door opened and my mother was there sort of straightened out and put back together and all she said to me was oh there there you are I wonder where you'd gone and that was it and from that time I had a very reactive case of PTSD yeah, that's such an early age for something that incredibly traumatic to to happen. That has to affect a kid that age. It just has to. Well, it was it was totally 
first of all, in an age where rational description was not a function for me. Yeah, right. The three, three and a half, I had no rational basis to think about it. Right. Plus, given the nature of the household I was raised in, um, such things would never have been broached anyway. Right. Besides, I believe my mother, it was the first instance that I'm aware of, there were many more to come, where my mother exhibited a dissociation reaction. Got it. Mm -hmm. In other words, she completely dissociated and repressed this event. I, I was, when you were telling me about her coming to the closet and asking, oh, or just simply saying, oh, there you are. I was wondering if it was more about survival for her or for you. But it sounds well, like it maybe a little of both, but definitely her reaction was one of just kind of survival. Well, it, yeah, it wasn't, I'm sure it was not a conscious reaction. Sure. I'm sure she dissociated the event because I'm quite sure this is not the first time she had been abused. Right. She, my, my grandfather was a violent alcoholic, and I believe she had witnessed and been subjected to many situations of domestic violence growing up. Right. So at any rate, I have intense memories of very pictorial memories of a number of moments of that whole experience, including remembering what it was like to be absolutely empty, empty minded and trembling at the back of the closet mm. because such events um, and PTSD in general tends to. Uh, induce an almost paralytic state sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. There, we talk about fight or flight, but there's also freeze and appease. And and regardless of what the reaction is, it, it's it's survival on like the the you know nervous system level. Right. So at any rate, that was that was um, my first trauma, and it was certainly domestic. <laughs> sure. And um, of course, what it did was generate in me um, a hypersensitivity expressed both both as hypervigilance and later to become, not much later, to become a hyperempathy. Hmm. So I believe it started with the hypervigilance. But, um, and what did that look like for you as a kid? Oh, eyes on everything all the time and totally, totally um, searching for any nuance of clue as to what might happen next hmm. it's like potential times. like potential threat yeah whatever because mm -hmm. of the, because this event had been so unpredictable beyond my uh, comprehension and um, um of of immediacy in other right. words you know one second everything was fine the next second screaming and rape is going on so um right so that brings us forth to my uh, fifth year of age. Um, we had half um, day kindergarten in my school district. And um, I started kindergarten in September of my fifth year. And my mother was doing her student teaching at the time. And so I was um, needing, needing to be cared for after school. I had morning session kindergarten. Sure. So from noon until the time she got home, uh, which was usually like five o'clock, um, I had to be cared for and babysit me. She and her husband were, this was, of course, this was, <laughs> I have to preface all this by saying, you know, I come from a, a totally different planet than today. So because how old are you? I'm sorry, I, I don't think we gave any context to that. I mean, you're my dad, oh, well, so obviously you're... Right, well, you're, I'm... I'm I'm a little over 70.5 years old. 70.6. <laughs> yes. So it's a it's a it's a different world that I grew right. up in. So we're we're talking about the year 1953 sure. now. And um this uh this woman who was babysitting me was married to a guy named Nick. Her name was Marie. They were um immigrants from Cuba. Okay. Um this was well before Fidel Castro. So um, and unfortunately, unbeknownst to, at the, at the time, anyone in the neighborhood, her husband was a pedophile. Mm. So one day, um, he did a classic setup. She said she needed some things from the store and wondered if he'd be willing to run an errand. And he said, 
why don't you go? That way you'll get what you, you know, you'll get the things you need. I'll look after him. So that was the the first time I was raped hmm. at the age of five. And, um, and subsequently, I believe I must have been the whistleblower, although I don't remember the details. Hmm. Like maybe saying, I, telling your mom or saying something to someone. Well, my mom, my mom obviously became aware something had happened. And I must have disclosed enough detail to her. Um, I did find out additional facts um, a number of years ago, but, you know, relatively not that long ago. My brother, my brother uh, told me that, yes, he had been indeed molesting kids in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it was handled the old fashioned way back then. They basically told him to get out of town. The neighborhood did. Right. If he knew what was good for him. Right. So I believe that was the upshot of that. They had to move. So that was, you know, that was an additional, the, 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 the most single, most traumatic, well, there were several traumatic things. Our, our family physician suggested an emergency procedure, which left me sexualized at the age of five um, in the home, sure. which was, a, yeah. So that was pretty startling and traumatic on top of having been raped. And I don't want to get too clinical here because <laughs> I can be very clinical, but there's no need to get into the details. Sure. Suffice it to say that, not that I mind sharing them, but suffice it to say that I was, again, traumatized. And more importantly, and I think this probably relates to my mother's own childhood experience of being traumatized, um, within several weeks of that event, my mother's uh, emotional attachment to me died. Hmm. And I believe it had probably had to do with her experiencing some repressed stuff of her own. Sure. But um, it had been around the time where she was having to give up pursuing as uh, she had, she'd had to, you know, modify her behavior over raising me as a daughter in any kind of acknowledged or visible way. And I do believe with the rape caused her to view, view me as, as spoiled and damaged goods, mm. which could no longer provide her with emotional sustenance. Right. So one day she just told me, come over here. I went over to where she was. She said, hold out your hand. Held out my hand. She took a ruler and hit my hand as hard as she could. And she said, you didn't do anything wrong. I just want you to know how it's going to be from now on. Wow. So like a really and, defining moment where things between the two of you changed. Well, at that point in time, overtly at least, I became a task and something of a burden for her. Sure. Um, so, you know, that's the long and the short of the beginning of the trauma. I was, um, I was uh, sexually molested two more times before the age of 13. I don't really need to get into details. Neither of those was in the home. Sure. And I was now kind of, you know, emotionally abandoned. Right, by your parent. By my parent. Well, my dad was not in the scene hardly at all. So, and my father was not a guy who could emotionally connect unless it was along his his lines of, you know, he he did a lot of drinking and chasing women. Let's put it that way. Sure. Between Between his first and second marriage. And so he wasn't around very much. And I, I believe my father had had his own traumatic events in childhood because uh, his ability to, he had no real insight or empathy for anyone else that I could discern outside of his own emotional needs. Sure. So, Something you know, going there it on was. There. Well, yeah, you know, he grew up in a small town in, in Missouri, in rural-ish Missouri. And I pretty much think, you know, he was a, he was a, rather like me, a shy and not aggressive child, or adult for that matter. He was not an aggressive an adult, as an adult. I, I never had, I never had any kind of physical assault from my father. I won't get into the other details, but my father was pretty disturbed in his sexuality. Sure. So there were some events in there around my ninth or tenth year, but. But basically, my, you know, my immediate, <laughs> my immediate parent and 
should have been nurturer was not really capable from then on, from the age of five, to see me as other as a as a project that she had to undertake, like an obligation. Well, yeah, that was expressed that way sometimes as an obligation, but more importantly, that she had a master plan that I was expected to fulfill in all its particulars. Mm. And that had to do with my activities at school and my my life career plan. She had an absolute ironclad plan about what I was going to do and who I had to be. Now, inside the home, I was still basically being raised as her daughter. Because my older brother, for example, my older brother never had to wash a dish, do a load of laundry. So she was like putting you into stereotypical gender roles of the era that girl, like that daughters would do. She was uh, she was a on the one hand having me do the kinds of service in the home that would have been expected in her generation hmm. of a daughter of a daughter, but on the other hand she was also having me putting me into a a role of being her emotional care critter because not only was I expected to from the age of about eight or nine I was doing doing laundry ironing all the clothes. Uh, doing housework, but also she put me in the role of her confidant, her massage therapist, her nail care technician. I did pedicures for her and um, even did some podiatry work for her because she had some some corns that needed servicing. So I did a lot of stuff that, you know, kind of in a old old school model of daughterhood sure. would have fallen to the daughter of the home in relationship to the mother. And, you know, weird as it may sound, some of that stuff, at least not the housework as much, but the, the stuff that involved direct, you know, interpersonal contact with her was probably the best part of her relationship right. through those years. Because outside of that, she was very, very busy, um, put upon, um, basically functioning as a single parent and a single breadwinner because my dad didn't contribute hardly anything to the financial upkeep of the, of the household. So uh, she was busy. She was pretty demanding. But basically, the, the basic thing was you didn't really want to to get her attention. <laughs> right. As a child, I had been pretty much put into the, the old-fashioned mold of, I don't want to hear from you. Right. You know? So you were becoming smaller to stay out of her way. Oh, absolutely. If her, well, she was, she insisted on for, you know, for a number of years in my childhood, it was like, look, don't address me. You know, don't, 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 don't open your mouth and say anything to me. If I want to hear from you, I'll ask you a question. Right. But but if I need you, if I say your name, wherever you are in the house, you better be there. And that was attended on a certain amount of emotional abuse, screaming, and occasional physical violence. Well, it sounds, so had, but in general, it sounds like a one-sided relationship that you were giving and she was taking, and there wasn't a whole lot of it being reciprocated. Well, you know, my mother was more complicated than that. So I, I do believe, again, that my mother was an abuse survivor. Sure, sure. She was also from a culture, a very rural culture. So she had a very bizarre set of expectations and perspectives about life. Sure. She did earn a bachelor's degree in education. And unfortunately, she thought that made her the expert on everything. Right. <laughs> so that got awkward later. But, you know, just covering... Up to up to the age of 12, you know, in the sixth grade, I actually survived a murder attempt on the playground mm. because through these years, I was periodically being bullied by boys in the neighborhood. Right. Um, because okay. I obviously they didn't even know exactly what was going on. You know, I got I caught a, a fair amount from the from the tougher thug year element of the, the boys neighborhood boys. I did start catching by the, you know, fifth or sixth grade, started catching the usual, you know. And why did they think they targeted, why do you think they targeted you specifically? Well, I was, I was shy. I was not athletic. I was not interested in their, in their culture at all. 
and um, those things, you know, that and um, I believe there's a certain element amongst, you know, the boy, the boyhood, even pre-adolescent, the boyhood culture that is just designed to find a scapegoat and do some bullying. Right. That was certainly true in my neighborhood. And uh, so here you are and kind of entering the middle school age, kind of getting picked on. Well, what the, the bottom the bottom line is sixth grade was was awkward because of that. Um, uh, three of them set on me and really, I think they were trying to kill me. They made a pretty close job of it. They'd, they'd studied the teacher's movements and they knew when the, the teachers saw so a teacher was supposed to be on the playground sure. until every child was off the blacktop. However, they'd studied this one particular teacher apparently and knew she would go in before the blacktop was cleared. So they lay in wait for me. One of them got down behind me. The other one pushed me over him to knock me flat. And they all three piled on me. And they were apparently trying to suffocate me. And they were doing a very good job of it. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't move. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do anything. The, the heaviest kid was laying across my face with his belly. And he had a fair amount of belly fat. So I was, my, I was pinned down and I was utterly suffocating. So I did... In desperation, the only thing left I had that I could do, which was open my mouth wide and bite down. All right. <laughs> as, as hard as I could. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to, what else started, are you going to do? Well, I was, yeah. I was getting Survival ready to lose mode, consciousness. Right. I was getting ready to lose consciousness. So he started screaming, get off, get off. And so they piled off and then he's whipped his shirt up and shows a sizable light mark. <laughs> so there was a little bit of a kerfluffle over that right then we all talked to the principal and i believe that they didn't bother to try to hide what you know that they had initiated this because i didn't get any trouble about it except of course word was out if you're in the sixth grade where i grew up and you have been convicted of biting another child you're a pariah sure and that carried over into junior high so that was an interesting carryover feature so seventh grade, a lot of things happened in the seventh grade because by this time I was sick and tired of being on the receiving end of all this treatment. <laughs> really not happy about it. And I grew up in a community with a fabulous school system and a fabulous library system. So I checked out a book on judo and a book on Aikido and I started teaching myself martial arts. Um, which is hard to do by yourself, but hey, they had great illustrations in these books. So I started learning everything I could about self-defense. And in the, in the seventh grade, I needed to use that. And I did use that a couple of times on a couple of attackers in a rather spectacular fashion. In one case, it was very public. And uh, during gym class, the gym teacher was absent and a uh, kid was coming at me, and I did a tuck and roll, planted my feet in his gut, and threw him about 12 feet across the, across the auditorium. But so, I mean, what I'm hearing, though, is that you started, like, doing whatever you needed to do to empower yourself. You're, like, you were trying to take take back I, those bits was, and pieces of power, whatever that looked like, and to stand up for yourself. Whatever it looked like. Yeah. I, just wanted to, I just wanted to leave me alone. Right. I just wanted to be left alone. If that was the best, you know, that <laughs> I was being offered, which was harassment, bullying, and occasional threats of violence, it was like, whatever. Because I have to say, by then, by seventh grade, for a lot of reasons, I was totally traumatized because you have to understand, here I am, I already know. I remember, I think it was in the third grade, I tried to tell some other boy in the in the boys' room that I was a girl, and he looked down at me, and he said, what's that? <laughs> And quite frankly, I couldn't answer him because we didn't talk about anything in my home. Right. So the, well, the idea that what, what was between my legs had something to do with my gender was a totally mystifying to me. Well, and there wasn't language around gender issues then. And there oh, was absolutely, absolutely no understanding of what it meant to be transgender in the 50s and 60s. I mean, there's right, just there's right. no. Well, not not where I grew no. up. No, I have to say I had gotten I had it, you know. In this period of time, somewhere in the later 50s up until I went started seventh grade in 1960, 
I'd had one big clue, which was the first American uh, transgendered woman reassigned surgically, which was Christine Jorgensen. Mm. And this surgery was performed, I believe, in 1947. But periodically, some story related to her would pop up in a place my mother couldn't control. That is to say, the network nightly news. Sure. And um, that led to a, a startling confrontation one day when I believe I was trying to express to my mother something about something I'd seen related to her and how I thought I might be like that. And I believe that was the event where she snatched the butcher knife out of the dishwasher and threatened to cut my heart out. So, you know, it was not a topic right. that could be discussed. Message received. <laughs> Never yes, going to bring yeah, that up well, again. When, you, when your mother's holding a butcher knife, you know, like eight inches from your chest and telling you that God gave gives her the right to take my life because I'm her property, one learns not to talk about that. Right. And so my basic my basic thing in the seventh grade was just to, to get it. I was fed up with male culture. Seventh grade was traumatizing because without anybody telling me anything, Gym class started, and of course, I had to be thrown into, you know, locker rooms and group showers full of naked adolescent boys, and that was pretty freaky. Yeah. That set my PTSD off big time, and I was one of those. Any way to avoid gym class that I can think of at that point, wasn't able to do it very well, but, you know, the requirement was you participate, you strip, you shower, period. You know, and so, oh, my God. So it was like try to get in and out as fast as possible. And again, the hypervigilance, keeping my eye on everybody. I was kind of lucky I wasn't the one probably most of the time being targeted for abuse in the locker room. But that's stuff that goes on in locker rooms, I hate to say, at least with boys. (laughs) So that was, you know, the the nice thing about junior high was I actually found – some people, some uh, a cohort, a small cohort <laughs> of fellow young intellectuals, because I have to say the only thing that saved me through all of these years was a ton of reading. Hmm. By, by, by the age of 12, I was reading European literature. I was reading Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And, and uh, you know, I was I, I got encyclopedic in the seventh grade. I read all of William Shakespeare cover to cover it was just it was one thing that I could get away with most of the time because my mother was a school teacher of course until she found out I was reading Dostoevsky when I was in the seventh grade and she hit the ceiling and tried to ban me from the adult library but that didn't work out thank god because we had a great library in my junior high and we had a ton of literature there so that was the other significant event in the seventh grade was I discovered the works of George Sand. If you know who Ms. Sand was. I do not. No, the French, the French uh, novelist who was um, probably transgendered, although she was in, in practice bisexual, but she made her fame and career um, while she was getting divorced from her husband she couldn't um, unaccompanied. <laughs> this was in like the 1840s. Unaccompanied females weren't allowed into cultural events in Paris, so she just started dressing as a man <laughs> <laughs> and showing and showing up for everything. You should Wikipedia do a Wikipedia search on George Sand, S A N D. And so they had her works in there, including you know uh, engravings of her, and it was like, all right. <laughs> Somebody gets it. Yeah, so you finally found some sort, someone to model for you a bit of your own experience. Well, I just, you know, it was the first time I had seen and had seen in such a dramatic way. Here is an incredibly well-known uh, author in world literature who was quite a trendsetter. Did you ever watch that, that movie with me? Dad. There's a Dad. great bot. Dad. <laughs> and, and anyway, well... She was she was a character. She had an affair with Franz Liszt. I mean, at any rate. at any rate. So I'm hearing. I'm... No, actually, Frederick Chopin, not Liszt. At any, at any rate. rate. So that was that was the journey up till that point in time. I I caught a little traction in junior high, but I wasn't you know I wasn't prospering. And the main reason was, and this started you know, I was off pursuing my own intellectual pursuits at this point in time, and my parent did not like that because that was 
ran counter to her desire that I do what she insisted, which is to become an engineer like my brother. And so I was all up in literature and music and, and theater and, you know, the cinema and, 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 and she said, well, that's all fine, but you're going to be an engineer anyway. You know, you're just going to be an engineer, get your, get your mind on it. That's what's going to happen. And although I like science a lot, and I still study, you know, all the current science to date, my problem was I already recognized that to follow any path that my mother was suggesting would mean that I would be forced to participate in male culture as a fact of my survival. Sure. And especially in that era, I mean, everybody who was in, you know, science, math and engineering was male. Well, absolutely. And my brother, who did it exactly like mom wanted, did that. He went all the way through to his Ph.D. He worked in the defense industry, which got him a nice exemption from Vietnam and um, worked in this incredibly male-dominated industry and um, did did, this, did his thing. And he's like the most monodimensional personality I've ever met in my life. It's amazing. So that was so, and that was not what you wanted for yourself. So what did you do? No, I, what I, well, what I wanted for myself was first and last to avoid participating in or having anything to do with male culture wherever possible, because I was at this point totally fed up with male culture, fed up with the you know the the dominating, bullying, um, Lord of the Earth kind of attitudes that went with it. And also I was in full rebellion against my whiteness, quote unquote. I had been browbeaten by everybody and even my school guidance counselor to take advantage of my white male status and go reap the benefits thereof. And I found the whole proposition utterly revolting. (laughs) I wanted to strip myself in every way possible of any pretense to, to, privilege, white maleness, all of it. I wanted it all out of my life. And so subsequently between, you know, fighting with my bouts of depression and wondering how I was ever going to fit into the world, I developed a total repugnance for all credentialization because I saw it as part of a very corrupt system. Which led to, I know where this is going because I know you, but... Dropping out of high school three times and I got out of college after one semester. Yep. Yep. Because it was just like, it, it felt like, I don't know, it felt like a miasma to me. The idea that I'm going to work to get this degree and participate in a system officially that I find to be vile and repugnant. Why am I doing this? Right. So I cast myself to the fate, as it were, and had a ridiculously interesting life because of it. So, you know, after dropping out of my original high school twice and then another high school once, 10 years later, I'm being invited to teach at my original high school. And they hired me, they got me a teaching certificate. And put me to work. It was quite astounding. So it was a bit of a wild ride. Well, the reason I mention this is because of this vast chunk of experience. All right. So here I am. I'm having to figure out how to live underground, as it were. I'd already realized I cannot be myself in a public way because it was illegal for me to exist. Right. When I say I came from a different world, it's only been in the last 10 years, it's legal for me to walk around as myself without getting arrested. As a woman. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Or target. <laughs> I mean, and there's still a risk for hate crimes, which I actually personally get right. worried about sometimes. But it, we are in a time in history where y- you can at least do that to some extent. Well, I've been walking around as myself in our good old hometown here in Chandler AZ now for... 10 years almost. And other than a few dirty looks occasionally, uh, no problems. Yeah. Which is pretty, no problems. Pretty wild. So I, I want to shift gears a little bit too, because I, I, I do want to spend some time and give you some time to talk about your healing journey as well. So like we, you know, we just kind of heard about this crazy, crazy foundation of trauma that you, that sort of, you know, sent you into your life and some of the repercussions of that. But I'd love to know about what your healing journey has looked from all of like from all of that. 
Well, the, the, the key element here, one of the key elements is you've got to understand with my life experience up to um, the age of 20, I had a lot of emotional turmoil. I had a deep-seated feeling that I was not worthy of anything, that I was fatally flawed. Mm. No matter how I felt about myself, it's me against the world, and the world's winning. Let's face it. You know, mm. when you're when you feel like you have to totally hide yourself from everyone to go on breathing, you feel like the world is winning. Mm-hmm. So. Along the journey, I would try to, um, usually one person at a time, initiate relationships in which I could be honest. And I had some success doing that. It was part of that journey where I had to realize my sexual identity as a lesbian. Mm. And um, and that didn't make anything any simpler from a social standpoint, I guarantee you. My attempts to create any kind of affinity group with the lesbian cohort back in my hometown of St. Louis were met with overt hostility. (laughs) Well, and it hasn't been until recently that people even realize that there's a difference between gender identity and sexual orientation. People still get them confused or conflate them as the same thing. So it's, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the the knowledge that it's all genetic. Right. I cannot control my gender identity, nor have I ever wanted to, except having to hide it to survive. On the other hand, I have no control over my sexuality whatsoever. It's all a matter of pheromones and psychological cues. And, you know, so my healing journey really was totally started with performance, Starting with starting in 1972, when I got a job with an educate the, the the big St. Louis County Educational Film Consortium, and I was given opportunities to to do and learn many many things, which led to the high school teaching job, and then after I led that, led to me being recruited by the WashU School of Medicine to be a lecturer. Again, this is without college credentials, and they were fully knowledgeable <laughs> that I had no college credentials. But they put me on the faculty anyway, and I absolutely knocked it dead, you know. Which must have felt really years. satisfying and really, Well, that's you know. part, of the, part of the healing journey. Now, it's, I've had a lot of ups and downs over that because you feel like, you know, you have a right to feel like you deserve to live without having to perform at that level. Sure. But that's what happened. Every time I absolutely aced a situation, first of all, it drove my mother crazy. She just couldn't stand it. And I remember when I got the high school teaching job, he was like, shock, you can't do that. I said, well, they hired me. <laughs> well, yes, I can, I guess. You know, and I got the medical school job. I mean, they, they were, I was recruited for that. The phone rang and they're saying, come in, we want to interview. It's like, oh, my God. Um, and so she was livid. She was livid. And I said, Mom, they know I don't have a college degree. They want me. What can I say? Right. <laughs> So there was a lot of interplay there, you know, and, and it's certainly my mother was never satisfied until the, the ultimate one. So, you know, and then, and then, my dear, the most wonderful thing in the world happened. I met your mother. Hmm, wow. You know, I mean, I know this is the younger generation here. I don't want to be offensive, but, you know, that's when I confirmed the fact that I always knew I like dykes. (laughs) (laughs) You've you've seen some of those those pictures of her. Oh, living naked and wild in the Rocky Mountains with all her lesbians. Oh, my God. Well, she was. Yeah, I've seen those photos. Yes, Yes, it was the 60s. You all were wild, wild people. (laughs) <laughs> that's it that sealed the deal yeah. for me it was like absolutely oh my god the most wonderful thing in the world she was such a force of nature you know and so aggressive <laughs> <laughs> so aggressive and so wonderful you know and um so that led to moving to arizona and you know led to you know, my 11 years of working in residential treatment as a coordinator and care provider. And it wasn't until my mother came out and toured my program at at Boys Ranch and saw me giving orders to my staff that she was finally satisfied that I was all right. You made it because you were... 
people right. had to take my orders. Right, right. That's the generation my mother right. came she, from. She needed <laughs> you to be powerful and have status. Now, having said all of that, as you know, I coped all those years by self-medicating because my PTSD is a killer. I mean, it's just a killer. And um, I have every kind of anxiety disorder you can think of. (laughs) I have performance anxiety, social anxiety, interpersonal anxiety, and just general free-floating anxiety. And all of those are kind of paralytic. You know, when they come on and you can't control the onset, you can never control your triggers or what sets you off and just blinding, you know, the earth literally moved under my feet when I was being, you know, just like a wave of was going through the the floor. And so I self-medicated for years um, because it seemed to work. And I was in a marriage where that was okay because we both did that. So, so, um, but like all things, everything changes. And so, you know, in the last uh, 18 months of my married life with your mother, lots of things came crashing down. Her health came crashing down. My mother died. So the real start of my true healing journey came with sobriety. So, and it all kind of caught up to you in a... Well, it came with the need for sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, my employer had instituted drug testing, so I had to stop smoking pot. And I, and I never just drank alcohol because uh, without marijuana to moderate my thing, I tended to drink too much. (laughs) So I had to stop smoking pot, even though my spouse did not. And um, that made life, that made life. That made life very awkward, sure. let's put it that way. And um, and then, but everything was coming apart. You know, a kid died at work. I went crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Had nothing to do with me except it was my employer. I'd been running around the valley for 10 years touting my employer as the savior of children. You know, giant headlines in the front of the newspaper, you know, boy dies at boys' ranch. It's like, you know, my mom died horribly of the consequences of her addictions. That tore my guts out. You know, my spouse was out of control. Her pancreas blew up. I mean, everything was going on. I was hauling you and your siblings around, you know, for like two months because your mother was bedridden when she got out of the hospital. And it was like, I was just, I was over the edge. So it sounds like (laughs) shit hit the fan for you. Well, it just all, you know, it all had to change. And I, you know, I'd been trying to get the, the courage up to put my foot down because I was married to a woman you could not negotiate with. She was a pirate. I love that. I mean, I loved her. <laughs> I love her pirate. I loved her pirate nature. It's like, you know, take no prisoners. You know, she was a take no prisoners woman. I do remember that very clearly, yes. <laughs> but you couldn't sit down and have a rational discussion with her about anything because she would just go ballistic. You know, and so everything had to come to a screeching halt. And, you know, you lived through that. Yep. So you know what that was like. But but that's where my uh, the beginning of my real healing journey was, because I've learned that the only way to really know anything about yourself is in complete and utter sobriety. Any form of mind altering substance, even if it's taken in small quantities on any kind of a regular basis really inhibits your ability to know yourself, mm. you know, because all you're knowing is yourself plus a drink or yourself plus a drug. Sure. You're not knowing yourself. And so that was the journey I undertook. Ironically, today is my 24th sobriety. Hey, congratulations. Day. I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, the 8th of May, 1995. Wow. So that's when it really started, you know, that first 10 years of sobriety was rough because you know what was going on, (laughs) you know, oh my gosh. That actually makes a lot of sense to me because I'm pretty sure I had my seventh birthday party in the lobby of a uh, rehab center with a bunch of weird, like grizzly guys playing ping pong around me. (laughs) I super remember that. (laughs) That makes The timing of that makes sense then. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I was glad to celebrate yeah. your birthday oh, with course. you. That was your, that was your mom's yeah. idea. She dragged you all over. I, there. Uh, you know, she was determined. We're gonna have a birthday to together. Damn it! <laughs> yeah, she's a, she was she a was pirate. pirate. That woman was a pirate. You know, cutlass in the teeth. Urgh. 
So, well, so anyway, so, so let's, let's talk more about, I, I want to kind of wrap up with your, with kind of where you are now and what you've learned. And well, the first 10 years of sobriety, I had to heal enough to get the courage to start making the choice to be totally out across the board. And you know that I was always honest with you kids when you were small, that I was a lesbian, which I'm sure per- perplexed the heck out of you at the time. Sure. Yeah. But you'd, you, you'd ask me direct questions about the state of my body, like being hairless and all that. And I would just say, well, you know, I was under, you know, I was under command orders from your mother not to reveal things, mm. period. So, and mostly I didn't do that. You know, I waited, I actually put off a lot of that until you were all grown. Because there's always fear of rejection, let me tell you. You know, that's having experienced the kind of rejection I experienced in childhood and adolescence. uh, The fear of being honest is the fear of rejection. You know, I always said the only problem I have with the truth is when I tell it, nobody believes me and I get in trouble. Right. (laughs) But nevertheless... Yeah, these last 15 years, uh, 14 years, as I've slowly developed a presence in the community, totally open. I mean, the big, a big one. I work in a very blue-collar environment, mm-hmm. as you probably know now in the printing industry. And a little over, oh, almost three years ago, I decided, you know, I'd reached that stage, and I just started gradually wearing more and more makeup to work. It was very interesting, <laughs> I'm telling you. Oh my gosh, you know, but I just, I just toughed it out. And today I go in looking fully like me and, you know, I haven't had any static in the last year. Kind of helping people get a little bit of exposure therapy. People are afraid of what they don't understand or what they don't know. Well, yeah, they're still making jokes behind my back, but, you know, I've had to occasionally on jobs, including the job I'm working now, I'm just, uh, I'm just past the 17 year mark on the, my current employment. I was just thinking today, a couple of about three and a half, four years ago, one of the other supervisors, not mine. Uh, and I've never made a secret about, you know, my martial arts experience. Cause I want people to get the message. Just don't F with me, please. You don't want to F yeah. with me. I'm guarantee you, you don't want to F with me. <laughs> Survival. This guy came over, came over and he made kind of a half speed joke punch to my jaw <laughs> he came up and, but but the thing was he came up with his fist and he actually touched my mm. jaw so I just put him in a little wrist lock gently and I reached around with my uh, right foot and I unweighted his Achilles tendon on his offside and just gave him a wobble and let go of him and he looked quite startled <laughs> and he's never bothered me since but that's a scary I mean that's a scary way to have to be in the world you know, after all of the the abuse that you had to suffer as a kid and through your life to still be in a place where you don't like safety is not guaranteed for anyone, but it's definitely not guaranteed for somebody who's transgender and looks different. And I mean, that's it's a, there's a little bit of it's a little scary. Uh, it's very scary. I've had to I've had to really develop a fine line of behavior for myself because I have to say Given the sum total of my life experience, I still have a significant inner well of rage mm. <laughs> that I have to keep an eye on. Yeah. Okay. I haven't had to, only had to use extreme violence against human beings once in my life to save my life. And it was very traumatizing. Yeah. They had it coming. They had it coming, but that's not the point. I am not by nature a violent person. I'm a very sensitive, loving person. But when it comes to my back against the wall fighting for my life, you don't want to put me there because right. <laughs> I have survived, you know, and I've had to go through a lot of survivors, survivor's guilt over a number of issues, you know. But um, so I'm still healing. Um, I certainly can't afford surgical transition and or even therapy for that matter. And I have to say at my age, I, I debate whether I would voluntarily undertake you know surgical reassignment at this although i know all about it i've been studying it since the 70s so i've watched all the progress i keep up to date on all the developments and i've already planned all my surgeries should i win the lottery and change my (laughs) mind but 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 we're talking uh, somewhere in the ballpark of three hundred thousand dollars it's just like yeah 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 
you know, and, and plus I really dislike needles and knives very, very much. And, and of course I've been totally, absolutely drug free for 24 years, including declining anything the doctor might prescribe. So, um, but nevertheless, you know, I'm, I'm relatively much more balanced than I've ever been. Mm. I no longer have overwhelming impulses to get the kitchen scissors and mutilate myself. Like I had for many years in my life, I would get be overtaken by this self-loathing and desire to re-sculpt my body ad hoc as it were. (laughs) But, um, Uh, so I kind of want to stop you there too and ask like, what do you do? uh, You know, what's your day to day sort of program for healing and self care? How do you take care of yourself? I'm, I'm active. I'm active in two 12-step programs, yep. and as you know, I do music, yep. and I do other arts, and I just put in a sewing center. Did You saw my dress yeah. project on my Facebook. Yeah. yeah, that was a big contention with my mom. She guarded her sewing machines like a dragon guards its horde, <laughs> and she wouldn't let me use her sewing machines or learn to sew. And so well, you're I, a grown-ass woman, so I, you can do whatever you want now. Right. Well, I have to tell you, I went through, that was part of my healing process. I went through, in terms of making decisions, what machines to buy and getting started, which when I finally did it, it only took me a week and I was sewing like a champ. But I went through a massive amount of psychological displacement Mm. just because of the conflict with my mom over the sewing issue. You know, I learned to sew by hand, but she wouldn't let me near the machine. But so even to this day, uh, you know, something like a sewing machine can be a trigger for you to... Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I started planning it, then I started having massive anxiety mm-hmm. attacks, and I really had to do some work challenging myself, you know, come on, this is okay. You know, mom's been dead for, for you know, since 94, right. you know, it's like, oh my You're God. You're allowed so, to buy a sewing machine. <laughs> so the he- the healing process goes on. Yes. And uh, I'll just close with this because you you know me, so you know I am a really I'm a real radical feminist. <laughs> this I do know, which is probably very informative for those who also know me who are listening. <laughs> and um, I just had an insight actually in the last forty eight hours or so. You know, on my album, I used there's a couple tracks where I'm using the sound effect off of my big Yamaha eighty eight electric piano the sound effect suite has a scream key oh my god (laughs) and it just struck me they have a woman's scream key they don't have a man's scream key (laughs) it's a woman's screaming there is no sound effect for a man screaming and i'm thinking oh my god you know it is so pervasive and yet you know i did use that to illustrate situations of women being abused on the album, which, by the way, has triggered PTSD attacks in several listeners. (laughs) I warn people now, I say, you know, do you have a stress disorder? (laughs) You may may want not to listen to this album because, you know, it's about these issues. It's about the reality of the world we live in. And so, you know, you know me, I don't pull punches when it comes to artistic integrity. So. It's like it's a little hard for people to listen to some of that, but but I thought it had to be said, and it was very therapeutic. Right. So. And, and I want to, yeah, I, I kind of want to wrap up by asking you, and I, I think I, I gave you a little bit of a warning that this would be coming, but I want to ask you to sort of end by giving any words of wisdom or if there's anything that you could tell a survivor who might be listening, you know, what would you want them to hear? What would you want to say? Well, uh, it's important to find people you can trust, which is not an easy journey because all relationships are built on trust. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us who struggle with this have had the experience of discovering that our friends are false, Mm -hmm. you know, that we think we can trust somebody and then we get (laughs) emotionally knifed. Now, I will say I'm not in defense of anybody's behavior, but this issue is one of the more intractable issues to comprehend, unless you're on the inside of it like I am. <laughs> you know, the the surest thing in my life I ever knew from birth till now is my gender. I always knew that without question. Of course, the problem was, what do I do with that knowledge? 
given the world I'm living in. So what worked for me was, first of all, relentless scholarship. I think everybody needs to be reading all the time. Mm. <laughs> um, because the more knowledge, the better. Knowledge is really important. Secondly, you know, for me, the acceptance that my gender identity is not the basis for social relationships. Sure. Um, because I think that's can be, especially in the drinking and drugging community, that can really get messy. Because, you know, without, if you don't think about it too deeply, you think, well, every LGBTQ person ought to be my friend, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. You know, I had, I had zero luck getting close to the lesbian community or the, the gay male community for that matter. You know, um, I mean, my problem is, of course, male culture. So that's male is male, no matter where you go. There's a lot of male cultural behaviors that just won't quit wherever you are. So I had to realize that I had to look um, for a more spiritual approach to this in terms of love and forgiveness. That really helped me with my parents. I love my parents. I was there at the end of their lives for them. I've forgiven them. For being human, and that has really informed my journey for myself, you know, because that's uh, that's a requirement to be to be truly at peace. Forgiveness is essential. It's nobody's fault that people don't understand these things. It's just the way it is. What people understand is a mystery anyway, really, as opposed to what they say they understand. So I've had to find my own unique path to walk. That doesn't mean I get everything I want. I, right now I'm, you know, paying off my bills so I can afford to stop working before I drop dead. <laughs> so that's, I'm within 18 months or so of that, you know, and um, I've, I've got a lot of really good acquaintanceships and a few friends. Mm. And that's pretty good. That's not bad. But like I say, service to others has become a, a core issue. Um, like I say, I work two different 12-step programs. I've got sponsees in both of them. And um, that's good. There's a lot of hurt out there. So being of service to another fellow sufferer, no matter what the suffering is, is a very good approach to one's own healing. Because it puts you right in the, the thick of it. It puts you in the mix of suffering humanity. Because mm. we're all suffering from something or another. Let's face it. Yeah, that's so uh, true. You know, uh, so uh, hopefully that, that could be of some help to anybody struggling with this. But, you know, for me, trust is the key. Yeah. And I now trust myself, which I didn't always in mm, the past. That's huge. It is. So, and, I, and of course... I love my children. <laughs> love you too, Dad. We've, we've we have survived so much together. That's true. We have such an amazing family, <laughs> you know, and that's that's quite a gift, you know. Because after my first marriage and my you know meltdown with my first set of children, which I don't believe can be repaired at this point in time, I made an effort, but they said no, basically. So, hey, I um, think we're pretty awesome. Yeah, well, I got, you know, I mean, I love those children and I wish they would find it in their hearts to reach out. But I reached out to them and and ultimately, you know, was told stay away from us. So that's the way it goes, you know. Yeah. But um, you're that you're the group that God gave me for special, <laughs> for special reasons. Bunch of wonderfully special children. And what a group you are together. <laughs> yeah, I think we're uh, what a group we all are together. I think we've all arrived at a really, you know, great place in our lives individually and together. And I don't know from I know you, you're my dad. So from where I sit, this is like the happiest and most whole and complete and balanced and healthy version of you that I've seen. I mean, in the last like 10 years or so, I would say that that's true. So, right. you know, especially given all all of the things that you've been through against all odds, you've kind of arrived at being you know, your authentic self and wise and strong and have passed that all on to, to us. Well, I hope so. You know, I just, I've, I became willing to just live me today and let go of hypothecating about 
other things. That's all anybody can do, really. Right. Well, you know, we tend to we tend to diverge from that if we think our answer lies somewhere outside of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, my experience is it doesn't. But um, you know, so. So here we all are. Life is good, and this has been a thrilling experience. I'm so proud of oh, you. Thanks, Dad. And, uh, and your journey coming up sounds like it's going to be a lot of yeah. fun. Yeah. So, well, with and, that, I uh, think you know we should we should kind of end the podcast here. But I want to just say thank you again so much for agreeing to let me interview you <laughs> and for sharing. My privilege and honor and a pleasure. My okay. Dear. Well, I love you very very much, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thanks, Dad. Okay, love you, love you baby. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.